Chapter 7, Part 1 of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter 7 The Ministrations of the Reverend Uttermust Dumfarthing. Part 1. Well, then, gentlemen. I think we have all agreed upon our man. Mr. Dick Overend looked around the table as he spoke at the managing trustees of St. Osoph's Church. They were assembled in an upper committee room of the Mausoleum Club. Their official place of meeting was in a boardroom off the vestry of the church, but they had felt a draft in it some four years ago, which had wafted them over to the club as their place of assembly. In the club there were no drafts. Mr. Dick Overend sat at the head of the table, his brother George beside him, and Dr. Boomer at the foot. Beside them were Mr. Boulder, Mr. Skinyer, of Skinyer and Beatham, and the rest of the trustees. You are agreed, then, on the Reverend Uttermust Dumfarthing? Quite agreed, murmured several of the trustees together. A most remarkable man, said Dr. Boomer. I heard him preach in his present church. He gave utterance to thoughts that I have myself been thinking for years. I never listened to anything so sound or so scholarly. I heard him the night he preached in New York, said Mr. Boulder. He preached a sermon to the poor. He told them they were no good. I never heard, outside of a Scotch pulpit, such splendid invective. Is he Scotch? said one of the trustees. Of Scotch parentage, said the university president. I believe he is one of the Dumferthings of Dumfernline Dumfries. Everybody said, oh, and there was a pause. Is he married? asked one of the trustees. I understand, answered Dr. Boomer, that he is a widower with one child, a little girl. Does he make any conditions? None whatever, said the chairman, consulting a letter before him, except that he is to have absolute control and in regard to salary. These two points settled, he says, he places himself entirely in our hands. And the salary? asked someone. Ten thousand dollars, said the chairman payable quarterly in advance. A chorus of approval went round the table. Good, excellent, a first-class man, muttered the trustees. Just what we want. I am sure, gentlemen, said Mr. Dick Overend, voicing the sentiments of everybody, we do not want a cheap man. Several of the candidates whose names have been under consideration here have been in many respects, in point of religious qualification, let us say, most desirable men, the name of Dr. McSquirt, for example, has been mentioned with great favor by several of the trustees. But he is a cheap man. I feel we don't want him. What is Mr. Dumfarthing getting where he is? asked Mr. Boulder. 9,900, said the chairman. And Dr. McSquirt? $1,400. Well, that settles it, exclaimed everybody with a burst of enlightenment. And so it was settled. In fact, nothing could have been plainer. I suppose, said Mr. George Overend, as they were about to rise, that we are quite justified in taking it for granted that Dr. McTeague will never be able to resume work. Oh, absolutely for granted, said Dr. Boomer. Poor McTeague. I hear from Slider that he was making desperate efforts this morning to sit up in bed. His nurse with difficulty prevented him. Is his power of speech gone? asked Mr. Boulder. Practically so. In any case, Dr. Slider insists on his not using it. In fact, poor McTeague's mind is a wreck. 
His nurse was telling me that this morning he was reaching out his hand for the newspaper and seemed to want to read one of the editorials. It was quite pathetic, concluded Dr. Boomer, shaking his head. So the whole matter was settled, and the next day all the town knew that St. Osoph's Church had extended a call to the Reverend Uttermust Stumfarthing and that he had accepted it. Within a few weeks of this date, the Reverend Uttermust Stumfarthing moved into the manse of St. Osoph's and assumed his charge, and forthwith he became the sole topic of conversation on Plutoria Avenue. Have you seen the new minister of St. Osoph's? everybody asked. Have you been to hear Dr. Dumfarthing? Were you at St. Osoph's church on Sunday morning? Ah, uh, you really should go. Most striking sermon I ever listened to. The effect of him was absolute and instantaneous. There was no doubt of it. My dear, said Mrs. Buncomhurst to one of her friends, in describing how she had met him, I never saw a more striking man. Such power in his face. Mr. Boulder introduced him to me on the avenue, and he hardly seemed to see me at all, simply scowled. I was never so favorably impressed with any man. On his very first Sunday, he preached to his congregation on eternal punishment, leaning forward in his black gown and shaking his fist at them. Dr. McTeague had never shaken his fist in thirty years, and as for the Reverend Fairforth Furlong, he was incapable of it. But the Reverend Uttermust Dumfarthing told his congregation that he was convinced that at least seventy percent of them were destined for eternal punishment, and he didn't call it by that name, but labeled it simply and forcibly hell. The word had not been heard in any church in the better part of the city for a generation. The congregation was so swelled next Sunday that the minister raised the percentage to eighty-five, and everybody went away delighted. Young and old flocked to St. Osoph's. Before a month had passed, the congregation at the evening service at St. Asaph's church was so slender that the offertory, as Mr. Furlong Sr. himself calculated, was scarcely sufficient to pay the overhead charge of collecting it. The presence of so many young men sitting in serried files close to the front was the only feature of his congregation that extorted from the Reverend Mr. Dumfarthing something like approval. It is a joy to me to see, he remarked to several of his trustees, that there are in the city so many godly young men, whatever the elders may be. But there may have been a secondary cause at work, for among the godly young men of Plutoria Avenue, the topic of conversation had not been, have you heard the new Presbyterian minister, but have you seen his daughter? You haven't? Well, say. For it turned out that the child of Dr. Uttermust Dumfarthing, so called by the trustees, was the kind of child that wears a little round hat straight from Paris with an upright feather in it, and a silk dress in four sections, and shoes with high heels that would have broken the heart of John Calvin. Moreover, she had the distinction of being the only person on Plutoria Avenue who was not one whit afraid of the Reverend Uttermust Dumfarthing. She even amused herself, in violation of all the rules, by attending evening services at St. Asaph's, where she sat listening to the Reverend Edward and feeling that she had never heard anything so sensible in her life. I'm simply dying to meet your brother, she said to Mrs. Tom Overend, otherwise Philippa. He's such a complete contrast with father. She knew no higher form of praise. Father's sermons are always so frightfully full of religion, and Philippa promised that meet him she should. But whatever may have been the effect of the presence of Catherine Dumfarthing, there is no doubt the greater part of the change situation was due to Dr. Dumfarthing himself. Everything he did was calculated to please. 
He preached sermons to the rich and told them they were mere cobwebs, and they liked it. He preached a special sermon to the poor and warned them to be mighty careful. He gave a series of weekly talks to working men and knocked them sideways. And in the Sunday school, he gave the children so fierce a talk on charity and the need of giving freely and quickly that such a stream of pennies and nickels poured into Catherine Dumferthing's Sunday school fund as hadn't been seen in the church in fifty years. Nor was Mr. Dumfarthing different in his private walk of life. He was heard to speak openly of the Overend brothers as men of wrath, and they were so pleased that they repeated it to half the town. It was the best business advertisement they had had for years. Dr. Boomer was captivated with the man. True scholarship, he murmured, as Dr. Dumfarthing poured undiluted Greek and Hebrew from the pulpit, scorning to translate a word of it. Under Dr. Boomer's charge, the minister was taken over the length and breadth of Plutoria University and reviled it from the foundations up. Our library, said the president, two hundred thousand volumes. I, said the minister, a powerful heap of rubbish, I'll be bound. The photograph of our last year's graduating class, said the president. A poor lot, to judge by the faces of them, said the minister. This, Dr. Dumferthing, is our new radiographic laboratory. Mr. Spiff, our demonstrator, is preparing slides which I believe actually show the movements of the atom itself, do they not, Mr. Spiff? Ah, said the minister, piercing Mr. Spiff from behind his dark brows. It will not avail you, young man. Dr. Boomer was delighted. Poor McTeague, he said. And by the way, Boyster, I hear that McTeague is trying to walk again. A great error. It shouldn't be allowed. Poor McTeague knew nothing of science. The students themselves shared in the enthusiasm, especially after Dr. Dumfarthing had given them a Sunday afternoon talk in which he showed that their studies were absolutely futile. As soon as they knew this, they went to work with a vigor that put new life into the college. Meantime, the handsome face of the Reverend Edward Fairforth Furlong began to wear a sad and weary look that had never been seen on it before. He watched the congregation drifting from St. Asaph's to St. Osoph's and was powerless to prevent it. His sadness reached its climax one bright afternoon in the late summer, when he noticed that even his Episcopal blackbirds were leaving his elms and moving westward to the spruce trees of the manse. He stood looking at them with melancholy on his face. Why, Edward, cried his sister Philippa, as her motor stopped beside him, how doleful you look. Get into the car and come out into the country for a ride. Let the parish tees look after themselves for today. Tom, Philippa's husband, was driving his own car. He was rich enough to be able to, and seated with Philippa in the car was an unknown person, as prettily dressed as Philippa herself. To the rector she was presently introduced as Miss Catherine something. He didn't hear the rest of it, nor did he need to. It was quite plain that her surname, whatever it was, was a very temporary and transitory affair. So they sped rapidly out of the city and away out into the country, mile after mile, through cool, crisp air, and among the woods with the touch of autumn bright already upon them, and with blue sky and great still clouds white overhead. And the afternoon was so beautiful and so bright that as they went along there was no talk about religion at all, nor was there any mention of mother's auxiliaries or girls' friendly societies, nor any discussion of the poor. It was too glorious a day. But they spoke instead of the new dances, and whether they had come to stay, and of such sensible topics as that. 
Then presently, as they went on still further, Philippa leaned forwards and talked to Tom over his shoulder and reminded him that this was the very road to Castel Casteggio, and asked him if he remembered coming up it with her to join the Newberries ever so long ago. Whatever it was that Tom answered, it is not recorded, but it is certain that it took so long in the saying that the Reverend Edward talked in tete-a-tete with Catherine for fifteen measured miles, and was unaware that it was more than five minutes. Among other things, he said and she agreed, or she said and he agreed, that for the new dances it was necessary to have always one and the same partner, and to keep that partner all the time. And somehow, simple sentiments of that sort, when said direct into a pair of listening blue eyes behind a purple motor veil, acquire an infinite significance. Then, not much after that, say three or four minutes, they were all of a sudden back in town again, running along Plutoria Avenue, and to the rector's surprise, the motor was stopping outside the manse, and Catherine was saying, Oh, thank you ever so much, Philippa. It was just heavenly, which showed that the afternoon had had its religious features after all. What? said the rector's sister as they moved off again. Didn't you know? That's Catherine Dumfarthing. When the Reverend Fairforth Furlong arrived home at the rectory, he spent an hour or so in the deepest of deep thought in an armchair in his study. Nor was it any ordinary parish problem that he was revolving in his mind. He was trying to think out some means by which his sister Juliana might be induced to commit the sin of calling on the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. The thing had to be represented as in some fashion or other an act of self-denial, a form of mortification of the flesh. Otherwise he knew Juliana would never do it. But to call on Miss Catherine Dumfarthing seemed to him such an altogether delightful and unspeakably blissful process that he hardly knew how to approach the topic. So when Juliana presently came home, the rector could find no better way of introducing the subject than by putting it on the ground of Philippa's marriage to Miss Dumfarthing's father's trustee's nephew. Juliana, he said, don't you think that perhaps, on account of Philippa and Tom, you ought, or at least it might be best, for you to call on Miss Dumfarthing? Juliana turned to her brother as he laid aside her bonnet and her black gloves. I've just been there this afternoon, she said. There was something as near to a blush on her face as her brother had ever seen. But she was not there, he said. No, answered Juliana, but Mr. Dumfarthing was. I stayed and talked some time with him, waiting for her. The rector gave a sort of whistle, or rather that blowing out of air which is the Episcopal symbol for it. Didn't you find him pretty solemn, he said? Solemn, answered his sister. Surely, Edward, a man in such a calling as his ought to be solemn. I don't mean that exactly, said the rector. I mean, uh, hard, bitter, so to speak. Edward, exclaimed Juliana, how can you speak so? Mr. Dumfarthing hard? Mr. Dumfarthing bitter? Why, Edward, the man is gentleness and kindness itself. I don't think I ever met anyone so full of sympathy, of compassion with suffering. Juliana's face had flushed. It was quite plain that she saw things in the Reverend Uttermas Dumfarthing as some one woman does in every man that no one else could see. The Reverend Edward was abashed. I wasn't thinking of his character, he said. I was thinking rather of his doctrines. 
wait till you have heard him preach juliana flushed more deeply still i heard him last sunday evening she said the rector was silent and his sister as if impelled to speak went on and i don't see edward how anyone could think him a hard or bigoted man in his creed he walked home with me to the gate just now and he was speaking of all the sin in the world and of how few how very few people can be saved and how many will have to be burned as worthless and he spoke so beautifully he regrets it edward regrets it deeply it is a real grief to him on which juliana half in anger withdrew and her brother the rector sat back in his chair with smiles rippling all over his saintly face for he had been wondering whether it would be possible even remotely possible to get his sister to invite the dumfarthings to high tea at the rectory some day at six o'clock evening dinner was out of the question and now he knew within himself that the thing was as good as done while such things as these were happening and about to happen there were many others of the congregation of st asaph's beside the rector to whom the growing situation gave cause for serious perplexities indeed all who were interested in the church the trustees and the mortgagees and the underlying debenture holders were feeling anxious for some of them underlay the sunday school whose scholars offerings had declined forty per cent and others underlay the new organ not yet paid for while others were lying deeper still beneath the ground side of the church with seven dollars and a half a square foot resting on them i don't like it said mr lucullus fyshe to mr newberry they were both prominent members of the congregation i don't like the look of things i took up a block of furlong's bonds on his guild building from what seemed at the time the best of motives the interest appeared absolutely certain now it's a month overdue on the last quarter i feel alarmed neither do i like it said mr newberry shaking his head and i'm sorry for fairforth fairlong an excellent fellow fyshe excellent I keep wondering Sunday after Sunday if there isn't something I can do to help him out. One might do something further, perhaps, in the way of new buildings or alterations. I have, in fact, offered, by myself, I mean, and without other aid, to dynamite out the front of his church, underpin it, and put him in a Norman gateway. Either that, or blast out the back of it where the choir sit, just as he likes. I was thinking about it last Sunday as they were singing the anthem and realizing what a lot one might do there with a few sticks of dynamite. I doubt it, said Mr. Fyshe. In fact, Newbury, to speak very frankly, I begin to ask myself, is Furlong the man for the post? Oh, surely, said Mr. Newbury in protest. Personally, a charming fellow, went on Mr. Fyshe. But is he, all said and done, quite the man to conduct a church? In the first place, he is not a businessman no said mr newberry reluctantly that i admit very good and secondly even in the matter of his religion itself one always feels as if he were too little fixed too unstable he simply moves with the times that at least is what people are beginning to say of him that he is perpetually moving with the times it doesn't do newberry it doesn't do whereupon mr newberry went away troubled and wrote to fairforth furlong a confidential letter with a signed check in it for the amount of mr fyshe's interest and with such further offerings of dynamite of underpinning and blasting as his conscience prompted 
When the rector received and read the note, and saw the figures of the check, there arose such a thankfulness in his spirit as he hadn't felt for months, and he may well have murmured, for the repose of Mr. Newberry's soul, a prayer not found in the rubric of King James. All the more cause had he to feel light at heart, for as it chanced, it was on that same evening that the Dumfarthings, father and daughter, were to take tea at the rectory. Indeed, a few minutes before six o'clock, they might have been seen making their way from the manse to the rectory. On their way along the avenue, the minister took occasion to reprove his daughter for the worldliness of her hat. It was a little trifle from New York that she had bought out of the Sunday school money, a temporary loan. And a little further on, he spoke to her severely about the parasol she carried, and further yet about the strange fashion, specially condemned by the Old Testament, in which she wore her hair. So Catherine knew in her heart from this that she must be looking her very prettiest, and went into the rectory radiant. The tea was, of course, an awkward meal at the best. There was an initial difficulty about grace, not easily surmounted. And when the Reverend Mr. Dumfarthing sternly refused tea as a pernicious drink weakening to the system, the Anglican rector was too ignorant of the Presbyterian system to know enough to give him scotch whiskey. But there were bright spots in the meal as well. The rector was even able to ask Catherine, sideways as a personal question, if she played tennis. And she was able to whisper behind her hand, not aloud, and to make a face in the direction of her father, who was absorbed for the moment in a theological question with Juliana. Indeed, before the conversation became general again, the rector had contrived to make a rapid arrangement with Catherine, whereby she was to come with him to the Newberry's tennis court the day following, and learn the game, with or without permission. So the tea was perhaps a success in its way, and it is noteworthy that Juliana spent the days that followed it in reading Calvin's Institutes, specially loaned to her, and dumfarthing on the certainty of damnation, a gift, and in praying for her brother, a task practically without hope, during which same time the rector in white flannels and Catherine in a white duck skirt and blouse were flying about on the green grass of the Newberry's court and calling, Love, love all, to one another so gaily and so brazenly that even Mr. Newberry felt there must be something in it. But all these things came merely as interludes in the moving currents of greater events. For as the summer faded into autumn, and autumn into winter, the anxieties of the trustees of St. Asaph's began to call for action of some sort. End of chapter 7, part 1. Recording by Patty Cunningham.